Welcome back to another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. This is a podcast for fans of the guests who appear on this show, as well as fans of music in general, and a podcast for singers, songwriters, musicians, recording artists, entertainers who want to learn more to help them grow in what they're doing. I'm Bruce Wozniak from Now Hear This Incorporated, which provides management, publicity, and related services. If I can help you with your music career, whether that's becoming a client or just simply a private one-on-one online video consultation, by all means let me know i have been doing so for artists across the u.s since 2004 and would love to help you as well get in touch through the email address podcast at nhte.net which is also where you can write to with comments about the show i'm always eager to hear from listeners with any feedback that you have Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Nashville, my guest is a record producer, film and TV composer, songwriter, arranger, musical director, and band leader. He first came into international prominence as a record producer in the late 70s, producing numerous albums and singles, including the Grammy-nominated Sometimes When We Touch by Dan Hill. He also worked on two Grammy-nominated Johnny Mathis albums, Growing a reputation as a duet producer, he has spent the past five years producing duets with such artists as Billy Joel, Willie Nelson, Vince Gill, Natalie Cole, Gloria Estefan, the list goes on. As an artist, he released a 15-song album this past March, and his top five songs on Spotify have a combined 22 million streams. His projects include Disney's Lullaby album, which went gold, and more than 30 album projects for Disney over the last 20 years. He had been vice president of A&R for Walt Disney Records in 2007 and 2008. You've been hearing a song by Christian Chenoweth that he produced called Why Couldn't It Be Christmas? Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, Fred Mullen. Well, thank you so much for, for having me on the show, and, and uh, that was a very long intro. I'm worthy of that intro. <laughs> it, honestly, that just might be the longest guest intro I've done in recent memory. Wow. Fred, congratulations on all your yeah. success. We certainly have a lot to talk about. Thank you. But let's start off by first having you tell the audience about the song that was just playing called Why Couldn't It Be Christmas? Yeah, I you know, we recorded, um, which of course the classic situation is you record Christmas albums generally in the summer, uh, and we recorded this one in Nashville, and it was my first chance to produce Kristen Chenoweth, and my God, she's just the most amazing, uh, most absolutely powerful talent in one short body. She's about 4'11 or something, uh, but anyway, she's just remarkable, and uh that particular song was really one that we we really loved. It was written by a person I actually co-produced the record with, who was really uh, uh, the person who introduced me to Kristen, um, and that's Jay Landers. But Jay and um, another writer wrote this great sort of uplifting, up-tempo ear candy. And I decided when I was arranging the, the, the song with the live musicians, of course, in the studio, um, uh, to help augment I had already created, I wanted it to be like a Phil Spector wall of sound production, you know, almost like uh, Dadu Ron Ron or something mm. from 1960s. And so we really sort of, you know, did that to propel the song. And I felt, I think we really succeeded. It's a great, really fun song. 
You're not the first person that has mentioned Christian Chenoweth on this show. I remember episode 248 with Chris Donahue. He's the bass player for Emmy Lou Harris, and everybody who has mentioned her has always had nothing but nice things to say, as you just did. I'm guessing that this was your first experience working with her? Yes, this was the first time. Um, and, uh, it won't be the last. We've really become quite close, and it was such an extraordinarily wonderful experience to make this record and it only came out i guess about a month and a half ago but it's doing quite well but she's you know she is probably the most uh, real sweet loving character at the same time being the most powerful uh you know star that i've ever worked with on so many levels because she's really just covering every ground you know acting broadway you know movie mm. in tv music uh, she's just absolutely you know she's a, a like dynamite but you bring up an interesting point there fred does it make it easier in your seat to work with someone who has done work across all those different arenas that you just mentioned, as opposed to someone who, quote-unquote, just sings? Or is it a case of, no, Bruce, if someone comes in and has the absolute most powerful, professional, terrific voice, and obviously the personality to go with it, it, it's no different because they haven't done Broadway and they haven't done TV, et cetera? I think that, you know, it's an interesting question. There is something that is so bigger than life about her and again, I underline that she's also the the most delightful and sweetest person. And there's no you know no bull there. She's just you know she's as real and and wonderful and extravagantly kind. Um, but to answer your question, I think it's you know it all helps. If someone really has that deep uh, sense a resume um, that they can draw on whether it's how they perform the song as a vocalist, whether it's what they bring to it, you know, when we're sort of working out the ideas for the songs and how mm. we're going to record them. I would imagine it's probably better to have someone who's more well-rounded, but it, but that doesn't mean to say that, you know, I don't love working with people who are just, you know, a songwriter or a singer or whatever. But, yeah, Kristen brings a lot to the to the game, which is great. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, folks, thinking back to last week's interview with Drew Smith, who, among other roles, runs Gray Sound Recording Services, this is now two weeks in a row where the guest clearly could talk all about the importance of having professional audio quality on all your recording projects, whether it's a podcast, a song demo, an album, heck, even a live stream. I am all about delivering the best sound for my audience, which is why I've been so happy to have gotten introduced to Centrance like the word entrance with a C at the beginning. They are who makes the audio interface that I use, which has professional quality preamps and is not only the centerpiece of my recording rig when I'm here at home base, but doubles as a handheld portable recording device when I'm on location. If you are an aspiring performer, this is the investment that you'll make once and not buy another one. And in doing so, you'll be giving your fans, your audience, studio quality audio on every project, every time. And for my audience, there is a special offer on my show website, nhte.net. There is an ad for the mixer face. On desktop, you'll see the ad in the right-hand column. On mobile, scroll way down near the bottom of the page. Click that mixer face ad, and when you order from Centrance and put in the code BRUCE, 
They will not only give you free U.S. shipping, but they'll also send you a free watertight accessory case to carry it in. Fred, let's roll up our sleeves here, and since we were just playing a song from it, have you talk about the Christian Chenoweth Christmas album that was released for this holiday season, as you mentioned, which that song is from. Well, I mean, it is, um, it's our second Christmas album, and I, again, very honored to have produced it. Uh, the, the songs were, you know, we, we picked a couple of well-known songs, tried to do our own unique take on them, and there's a few original songs that came from different writers that really, really are incredible. Stephen who wrote the musical Godspell along with other great musical works, uh, wrote a gorgeous song called We Are Lights, which we did, um, and that's our Hanukkah. And, you know, but it's really just, uh, it's an important record on many levels. She thinks it's the greatest thing she's ever done, and I have to say if that's the case, I'm certainly very, very proud, and, and I certainly think it's one of the greatest things I've ever been a part of. So it's just a, it's a lovely, spirited soulful and um and on some levels uh, a bit theatrical uh and i think it's it's a very worthy christmas you mentioned earlier that of course christmas albums get recorded in the summertime i think when the casual music listener hears that they think oh what do they do like put up a christmas tree for the artist in the studio so that it feels like christmas but as a producer (laughs) is there anything that you can really do differently from the producer chair to make the artist to help them get more in the Christmas spirit, knowing that it is July and sunny and warm outside. Yeah, it was actually May, um, but in May, May in Nashville feels like summer. You know, there's really nothing that we did. Uh, you know, I mean, I think we probably, you know, at one point maybe I think you know we were having some desserts and I had someone make up some sort of Santa Claus cookies or something, but uh, no, there's really nothing. You know, we, we're, you know, we're all professionals, so we just basically, we go in the studio and we're, you know, we're just really on a, we're sort of on a mission, and the mission becomes very, very much within those walls of the studio, and it doesn't really matter what's going on outside or what the date reads. It's just, you know, we're doing important music, and it happens to be Christmas. Yeah, I like that, because I'm thinking of it being no different from treating it as a genre and say, are we doing kids music today? Are we doing Christmas music? Are we doing country? Are we doing pop? So I think with that view, it doesn't matter, like you said, what the date is on the calendar or what the weather is or isn't outside. Yeah, yeah. Well, before we get into lots of other projects, including various artists, let's talk about your own newest recording project, which was the 15-song album that I mentioned back in the intro that you put out back in March. Yeah, um, you know, I had, um, uh, I have, I should say, a long history with Disney Records, um, and uh, probably over the course of, of, you know, since 1998 till a few years ago, I, I did at least 30 projects for them, including many that I oversaw in my year and a half of, uh, of actually running their A&R department in L.A., and, uh, you know, I think that writing music for children happens to come easily for me and on top of it it actually feels like about the best thing I can do because I almost I almost get the feeling that maybe a teacher gets maybe when they mm. when they're uh, you know when they're helping a child or a young child so so I, I definitely feel I'm very fortunate to have done so many children's records and you know I, I try to bring more of a 
sort of, you know, I don't want to ever play down to the children, and I certainly don't want to play down to the parents because I feel, you know, the parents, you know, because I am a parent and a grandparent, I don't want them to get sick of the record. So I'm also trying to make a record that's going to please the parents or the caregivers. Wow. So this record in particular, um, it's great to be a kid. It's, it came out, I guess, in late March, but. You know, kids' records take their time to get into the public. So, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it still feels like it came out yesterday. But my uh, excitement about this record came because during the first year of the pandemic, and I can't believe we're talking about this now, that we're in our second year. But the first year, and there was such lockdown going on, my two grandchildren who were in Toronto, and they were ages one and, and three and a half, I really saw that they were having a very rough time, especially the three-and-a-half-year-old. And it broke my heart. And I also had lots of time here in Nashville where I would be puttering, puttering around in the studio. Um, you know, here and there, I wasn't you know, as busy as normal because there were a few months that really were a lockdown. Yeah. And so I used that time to just every day I would walk down into my studio and I would sit behind the keyboards and I would basically write a song a day. And what I wanted to do was to write and, and eventually record an album that had songs about what it was going to be like for these young children when they started to experience all the great things that they're going to experience mm. as they grow. So uh, I called the album, It's Great to Be a Kid. And every song has something that I wanted my grandchildren to look forward to once we got past this mess. Mm. And I wanted to add some light and comfort to their world. And so I wrote this, uh, and then we recorded it in Nashville, and I sang some things, and I brought in some different singers for different songs. And then, interestingly enough, um, I was really just going to put it out privately, but I was, in fact, um, a partner and um, was sort of running the label called Melody Place. And my partner, um, who was really more of the business side of things, I played it for her, and she just said, oh, my God, we've got to put this out on the label. And I said, well, if you think so, I'd be thrilled. So we put it out on Melody Place, and, in fact, it's, you know, it's available worldwide. And I, I hope that young children get to hear it because it, it does bring a lot of joy. And, they, you know, the song, the song titles, you know, sort of tell you what's going on. There's a song called The Yummy Song, which is all about, you know, how great it is to finally, you know, start to eat some food and realize the foods you love and how much you'll look forward to good food. And, you know, there's just, there's a lot of things. Playtime is a song I wrote, which again, I want them to look forward to the time when they can be playing again with their friends. You know, this was a very lockdown time. So I was writing these songs saying when the light comes back on in their lives, they're going to be able to, uh, in a sense, realize all these songs that I was writing because I wanted to give them the hope that they'd be able to, you know, grow without any of these things sort of clouding the clouding the sky. Yeah, and I love these examples that you're giving because it's a whole new perspective, and I'm talking to the audience now. Is this not very different hearing a guest talk about writing children's music? And this takes nothing away whatsoever from all the guests who have been on the show and talked about the traditional songwriting, if you want to phrase it that way, that they do of 
the songs that we are all used to hearing in genres such as country, such as pop, etc. And so to hear about someone writing children's songs, and I love, Fred, the perspective that you brought to this. And listeners, we are going to have one of those songs at the end of this episode. And so Fred will get a chance to tell us about that one as well. But there's a couple things you mentioned in there, Fred, that I want to go back to. First is you mentioned that you do sing on some of the songs, but you brought some other folks in to sing on the others. How does one go about choosing who's going to sing on those? Because my knee-jerk reaction is to think, well, obviously he needs to find someone who has sung children's songs before, but maybe you're going to tell me that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, no, that's not, yeah, interesting. That's not the case. I just wanted, um, I just wanted, (laughs) I wanted certain voices, you know, that I felt were good character voices um, and also who happen to be people I work with all the time as uh, Tanya Hencheroff and Troy Johnson are two of my first call background singers on all sorts of projects that mm. I do, and they have such fantastic voices that really don't sound like mine. So I just wanted to create some variety. And Karen Richman, uh, who is actually um, my fiance now, um, uh, I'm very very thrilled to have her. She's an actor, and she, you know, brought some really sweet sort of singing and acting to, uh, I guess, three or four of the songs. And I just wanted people who created a variety of, of, uh, of sound and texture and interpretation besides myself. But are any or all of them voice actors also or not necessarily? Because that's another thing that I'm finding myself leaning towards as well. They're probably voice actors, and so that probably influenced the voice that they would bring to these songs. Um, the only one who probably does some voice acting is Karen, and, mm. and Troy and uh, Tanya are full-time singers. Okay, okay, interesting. Well, the other thing that I wanted to go back to is let's just hear a little bit more about Melody Place because you mentioned your partner, but I'm sure that you'd probably love to give a shout-out, as they say, and you know, mention her name, and, and, and also the distribution that, that Melody Place has. Yes, um, my partner, Lee Shockey, um, is based out of Memphis, and uh, you know she had never really um, been a part of a record label before. So I was running it, and she was certainly the business side of things. And uh, you know, it's you know it's been a really interesting time. And unfortunately, the timing for the label, and again, this is a small label. This is a boutique label. We're not trying to compete with major labels. We're mm-hmm. trying to do maybe three to four projects a year oh, okay. and um, and make them all unique and, and and you know I had a mandate to try to you know to try to find artists who already had established careers who would we could go direct to their fan base and so that was part of the reason we did Melody Place and then you know I, I think uh, you know we had a lot of things planned and to be honest the pandemic definitely shot whole a lot of the plans that we had, mm-hmm. but we still continue to release music, and uh, and and that's sort of still the hope that we'll be able to. And the distribution that you have, I don't want to say the wrong company, so help me out with who that is. Oh, I mean, we were originally distributed by BMG, and now okay. we're with The Orchard. Okay, okay, yeah. I thought it was BMG, but I wasn't sure. Well, let's shift to someone who is releasing their first project, an EP that's coming out in January from Amy Scruggs and produced by you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Bruce. I, you know, my my time as a record producer these days is it really runs the gamut where I get to produce someone like Kristen Chenoweth, you know, in May, who is one of, one of our greatest stars, frankly. 
Um, I mean, people consider her to be like Judy Garland. Um, and at the same time, I get a phone call from someone who I've worked with a little bit, and they say, gee, I've given your name to this wonderful talent out of San Diego who's actually a motivational speaker mm-hmm. and a, a broadcaster, but also a singer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she has, uh, she wants to do a self-financed EP. So, you know, I, I can go from, you know, Kristen to, to someone you've never heard of, and I still bring the same enthusiasm and passion um, to every project. And so I, I loved working with Amy. She was a delight, and she's really, really a wonderful talent. She doesn't write, so we, we definitely had to find the songs for her. Uh-huh. But she's in a country pop direction, uh, and the country pop direction she's going um, really suits her. And, and I'm, you know, I just had a ball going from Kristen to, to Amy. And uh, it's nice. To, it's nice to really go from one project to another and find that the musical challenges are totally different and the music's totally different. It's it's really fun. Yeah, you read my mind, and I think because you have, quote-unquote, done it all in your career, you probably like the challenge of this is different. This isn't the same thing that I've done. It's somebody who, like you said, this is someone who was a media person. It was somebody who was coming in to do their first project. It was someone who was not writing their own music. So I think it probably kind of, not that you need it, but if you understand the spirit with which I'm saying this, it revitalizes you to say, great, I'm excited. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it, it is. It's just, it's uh, it, there's a variety. I, you know, variety is the spice of life, they say. So I guess there's a certain amount of that. You know, it's, it's interesting. My, my job, you know, as a record producer, which is frankly my favorite that I do, and, and, and the one thing I've been doing pretty well full-time again since 2001, you know, it, it really allows me, um, as a, like a film director or a TV director, to basically go in there, make a record, and then go to another project, and it could be totally different. And it, it does keep me feeling excited. Um, and uh, also, I don't fall into traps as an arranger. I, I'm able to, you know, be fresh in my arrangements, etc. I don't want to forget this follow-up question. I was going to save it until after I asked you this next question, but I don't want to forget, so I'm going to ask you now. When you work with any artist, whether it's Amy Scruggs or whether it's the next person I'm going to ask you about, once that is done, is it, okay, I've moved on to plenty of other projects by that point, Bruce, and maybe I'll bump into something on social media or maybe the person will send me a text and say, hey, the the album came out today, or do you kind of follow the project, quote-unquote, closely as it is moving towards release? Um, I'm definitely a part of uh, uh, as much of the project afterwards as they would like me to be. You know, Uh. I've done so much overseeing um, the mastering and overseeing even the art on on a lot of the albums that I've been a part of that I tend to, you know, to watch over a lot of what I do afterwards. And uh, I'm happy to do it. You know, it it, uh, it certainly is. You know, but then certainly once it's out, um, you know, I probably don't have any particular further involvement except for just keeping an eye on it, see how it's doing, and see if people are enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It sounds like it could vary from one artist to the next, but at the same time, it's also interesting perspective that, quite frankly, I don't know that we've heard before in the show when I have talked to a producer. So that Amy Scruggs EP, as I mentioned, will be out in January, and then in March, another artist is releasing a project that Fred is the producer of being an album from Stephen Sylvester, who was on season 18 of American Idol. 
Yes, it's actually pronounced Stefan, although it's, ah. it's actually it reads like Stephen. Um, uh, Stefan is just amazing. I mean, he's uh, has a wondrous voice, and he's a wonderful writer. Again, country pop and Americana, but I, you know his writing and his voice are so unique. This guy is a, a clinically a baritone, but yet he is able to reach some incredibly high notes, and he has a really wonderful rasp to his voice. And so I just think it's one of the most interesting new artists I've ever worked with. And I think his his time on American Idol was extremely brief. Uh, I, you know, I, I think he told me literally, you know, there was a lot of plans for him to be further and deeper in. The plans fell through, but he was certainly there a bit. But, you know, I, again, a, a wonderful um, uh, bit of networking. Uh, I'm Chris Keaton, who's a terrific songman and uh, publisher and, and the manager in town here in Nashville who I've you know been friendly with and and uh you know I have such great respect for him and he reached out to me and said listen I'd like you to meet this guy and, and we had coffee and and it was just you know we just liked each other and he just said when could you do this record and I'm like I can actually do it now I'm actually <laughs> off for about three weeks so we just we jumped in but I'm I'm so proud of it I, we're just finishing the mixes now Okay. Now, you mentioned that Stefan does do his own writing. You mentioned that Amy Scruggs does not. Do you facilitate some of the co-writes that go on, or is it I make it available if they want me to write, or I will recommend other writers? How To what extent do you or don't you get involved when there is writing that's needed on a project that you're going to produce? Well, I mean, let's, I mean again, it, it runs the gamut. Okay. Um, Amy Scruggs, as an example, uh, James Bay, who who was uh, the person who brought Amy to me, uh, again is a terrific Nashville uh, entrepreneur, musical entrepreneur, and, uh, and again wonderful man. And he and I went through at least a hundred songs, a hundred and fifty songs over the course of a month or so, or longer. Uh, to try to find five songs that we felt were really, you know, fantastic and, mm. you know, that could really do something for Amy. So on that one, there was a real song hunt that he and I did, and then we brought them to Amy, and then, you know, she had to pick up, a, like, you know, to go through about 20 songs, and then we got it down to about five and six. So so that's one way. Yeah, there's certainly, there's there's times when I'm working with an artist who, you know, maybe doesn't have all the songs for the album, and they'll say to me, Hey man, would you would you write one with me? And mm -hmm. and I, you know, as a songwriter, although I, I must admit, you know, I don't spend a lot of time writing for myself. But you know, when called upon to write for a project or a movie or a TV thing, or when I'm producing someone who wants me to collaborate, I'm more than excited about doing that. But but I don't I don't generally do it. But um, if okay. it happens, then uh, I'm I'm totally game. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm joined today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Nashville by record producer, film and TV composer, songwriter, arranger, musical director, and band leader Fred Mollen. Visit his official website at fredmollen.com. I will put a link to it on the show page for this episode at nhte.net. His new album, released in March, which you heard him talk about, is called It's Great to Be a Kid and is available on iTunes as well as on Spotify where, wow, he has 225,000 monthly listeners. There is a contact page on fredmollen.com with information if you are looking to get in touch. 
If you are hearing this interview on one of the first three days of its release, you still have time to go back and hear the offer that I made three weeks ago on episode 409 when my guest was Chad Jeffers, the guitar player for Carrie Underwood. I'm talking about a discount I referred to during that interview that I would make available through December 31st for my online class at interviewtipscourse.com. If you are hearing this episode with Fred Mullen after that date, I encourage you to get on the email list for this show by signing up on the show website, nhte.net, because there are exclusives in that weekly newsletter, sometimes including savings like that. As a new year gets started, the on-demand go-at-your-own-pace class at interviewtipscourse.com is great training to set you up for success in 2022 when you are a guest on radio, TV, podcast interviews, and the like. Fred, before that break there, you talked about the EP with Amy Scruggs, the album with Stefan Sylvester. But wow, share with us about a new box set for Japan of Jimmy Webb demos, outtakes, live performances, rarities that had to be quite an undertaking yeah it is i've been sort of digging around my own personal archives i've actually been um working with jimmy since 1978 i was mm. really literally a kid and we i produced an album called angel heart in 1978 and um jimmy and i have been working together pretty well ever since and i consider jimmy probably to be the world's greatest songwriter and uh, I think a lot of people agree. So uh, for me, my work with Jimmy Webb is one of the highlights of my life. And so I did get a phone call from a label in Japan uh, who I've done some things for before. And, and they said, you know, do you have any ideas, you know, for another box set? Because I've done a few of these mm. with some of the great songwriters that I've worked with. And and I said, well, you, you should, we should do on Jimmy. I said because, you know, there's literally, you know, since he started his career, probably in the you know, middle '60s, um, we have tons of demos and unreleased masters, and you know, even the projects over the years that I've produced, there's outtakes and songs that didn't make the record. And you know, I just said we you know, also wonderful live shows that we have access to. So basically, the box set, which the Vivid Records in Japan will be doing, you know, is, first of all, it's, you know, the, they are such masters of, you know, the way they will put something together that is literally so collectible and so beautiful that I think it winds up retail for about, you know, $90. Mm. But it, it really has, you know, gorgeous photos and booklets and bonus things. And it's generally a two-CD set. And it's just, you know, I've been digging around now for over two months to try find all sorts of great, you know, historic demos and, and, uh, and, and rarities, et cetera. And I've got way too much to choose from. It's going to take <laughs> at least another month to, to get through it. Wow. Wow. That's quite a tall order. I, on the one hand, I don't, I, on the one hand, I want to say I don't envy you. On the other hand, I'm sure there's a great element of enjoyment to it and memories that come with everything that you are uncovering. Yeah, I mean, there's it's bringing back amazing memories. I mean, there's you know, I, I just sit there with my phones on, going through these cassettes and and reel to reels, and and I'm just going, oh yeah, I remember 1979 doing this, and I remember '84 Jimmy <laughs> sent me this song, and you know, yeah, it's it's. You know, first of all, I'm so honored to have uh, worked with Jimmy almost all of my professional life, and I'm so proud of that. And and so, of course, I take great 
uh, a, a lot of seriousness in, in what will be the final version of this particular project. Well, for the audience, there has only ever been in the history of the show one guest that we spoke for so long that we had to split it up into two episodes. <laughs> and with the resume that Fred has, my gosh, we could make, if there was such a thing as a, bo- a box set of podcasts, we could do a whole box set of Fred Mullen interviews because he and I could just <laughs> go on and on and on. So Fred, my apologies. I'm, I'm I feel bad phrasing this question this way because we could probably do one entire episode just on this topic alone. But I do want to make sure that we give you some time to talk about your TV and film composing career. Well, I mean, you know, I again, you know, my my musical life is uh, something that I'm enormously grateful for. And and the variety in my musical life has been sort of amazing to me. So around 19 thinking. 85, uh, I was back in Toronto after having moved uh, from Toronto to L.A. in 78 under the auspices of Clive Davis. And then three years later, um, I was married, and we wanted to go back to Toronto uh, and raise – we were going to have children, and I didn't want to raise them in L.A. So I moved back to, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, Toronto in, in 81. And over the course of the three years, I was producing some records again in Toronto, where I had had my first years of success. Uh, and I just started to get some phone calls about doing some music for, for TV movies and an actual big feature film. And I had never really ever had any interest whatsoever in <laughs> writing music for television or film. I mean, honestly, I really I love performing as a musician. I love um, I love making. Records. I love, you know, you know uh, I do love songwriting to some degree, but I never felt that I was really, you know, ever going to be a film and TV composer. And next thing you know, I think it, I started in 85, and then it just, over the next couple of years, I became a full-time film and TV composer. Mm-hmm. And my record work, I don't think I did much record work until about 96, and wow. then I, I snuck a few projects in. But, but, but it was so... It, it, it was um, the work was so overwhelming. After a while, I was almost three or four TV series at once, mm. and that's all me. I mean, it was me and my and my synthesizers and samplers, and uh, you know, I mean, I didn't farm out one note of anything I did. So wow. I was on an incredible musical journey that was that was sort of like a treadmill that I could not get off of mm. for almost 15 years, and I'm so proud of it. But when I was done, Bruce, I have to tell you, 2001, I moved to Nashville, and uh, and I turned down a lot of film and TV work, and I said, I'm I'm done. I want to go mm. back to making records, because it, I feel it's the thing I'm still best at. But I'm incredibly proud of a lot of the uh, TV and film I did, and you know, I mean, I I, I did a lot of the, in the horror genre. I did a lot of stuff that was in the sci-fi genre, but I did all sorts of stuff, you know, and I did Beverly Hills 90210, you know, I did hard copy for, for Paramount, and I, but I also did Friday the 13th, Part 7, and Part 8, <laughs> <laughs> and I did, uh, you know, and, and, and I, so I really do, again, you know, it's, it's sort of hard, I guess, to pin me down, but, but, I, but I think that's probably one of the great excitements in my life, is that I, I had this uh, um, incredible, just huge amount of different music and different ways to make the music. 
Yeah, it's interesting because you started into that by saying I had no interest in film and TV composing, and then you ended up having so many, so many, so many years of success doing it. But at the same time, it's a double-edged sword because it sounds like when you were done, it's like you tapped out and said, this is this has been a great ride, and I'm really thankful, but my gosh, it's just been way too much on me. <laughs> i got to stop. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's very lonely. It's a lonely gig, you know, mm. especially when you're having to work literally a day, seven days a week, you know, maybe 10 hours a day of just, you know, writing, recording cues. And, I mean, it's just... You know, you're, you're really literally, and the deadlines are incredible. You can't afford ever to get sick or, or anything. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I just was, uh, I, I was on an incredible run, and I loved it. And financially, it was wonderful. And I did all of that, you know, for my family and my children. And, and at the same time, I did really enjoy the challenge of it. But, yes, around 2001, I felt like a, like a jukebox that had been burnt out, you know, <laughs> and I just felt like I'd better... I better go back to to something I always felt that I could do really well, which was you know uh, produce other people's music and arrange their music yeah. and um, and I think that and that's not in any way to say that I didn't feel great about what I did, but but sure. uh, you know but I do feel that it was uh, it was a wonderful journey and and I I don't I don't second of it. It was fantastic. In there, I can't escape the fact that you said, under the auspices of Clive Davis, I can't let that go. I got to revisit that and ask you what that was. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, it, it just uh, my partner, Matt McCauley, and I, uh, you know, I, I'm from New York originally, but I moved to Toronto because uh, my brother had been an actor and he was he wound up there uh, in, in the early 70s. And my musical career, professional career, started in Canada. So um, I'm a Canadian and American, and uh, I hold two passports. But when we had um, great success um, in Canada with an artist named Dan Hill on the first two albums we did, the third album, sometimes when we touch, which is probably the biggest record I'll ever you know, be a part of um, as far as sales and all that stuff. It's an iconic uh, record. Uh, and we were very young, and we were very thankful to have had that kind of a hit. But once we had that hit, people like Clive came sniffing around, and uh, he liked Matt and I. He thought we were, you know, gifted guys. Mm. And he said, you know, do you want to go to L.A.? And we said, yeah. And he said, okay, well, you know, I'll set you up there, and you'll you'll produce my label. And wow. that's, you know, uh, during that time, we, we, we were doing the Jimmy Webb first album, Angel Heart, in 78, and at the same time producing projects for Clive uh, on Chris to... And we worked for, and we worked under that situation before we moved to L.A. And then for the first year of L.A., we were still working for clients. Okay, okay. Well, I did make a couple references to Disney back in the intro, and you alluded to them at one point. Please tell us about your years of producing albums with them. Oh, sure. Well, around 1998, I got a phone call from Jay Landers, who had been an old pal of mine, who was a tremendous supporter of my music. And at that point, he was at Walt Disney Records in Burbank, and he was running the uh, A&R division of the label. And he was involved in all sorts of music for young children, for teenagers, for you know what they call tweens. And he had an idea to do an instrumental lullaby album um, of mostly Disney songs, but done instrumentally, but done as lullabies. So very, 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 you know, just 
you know, if you don't wake the baby, the arrangements have to be very, very beautiful, almost mm. tranquil, you know. And so we did this first album called Disney's Lullaby Album. And uh, I'm proud to say it went gold and then some. And it, it begat another four or five albums for Disney of lullaby instrumental music that I did. And I'm extremely proud of them. And they have put a lot of children to nice sound sleeps every night. And I feel very good about that. But then I started to get other projects through Jay. And interestingly enough, I did a bunch of work for him. Uh, all different things, you know, sort of auxiliary music for uh, for records for that were tied to things like uh, Pixar's Cars or uh, Ratatouille or um, Finding Nemo, etc., mm-hmm. and you know, all sorts of other projects that we came up with. And then he actually left for Sony, and I said to him, "Hey, do you think I could?" take your job (laughs) i I know i know the world of kids you know i know the world of kids music well now and i know also you know all the people there and i feel like i'm old enough that i could definitely run the a and r for that label Uh. and he gave me a wonderful reference you know to the boss and after a few meetings i I actually wound up for a year and a half uh running the label uh jay did and it was a tremendous challenge, and uh, I learned a ton and was overseeing probably, I think, 150 albums in that first year. Wow. And it was a fantastic experience. But again, you know, these things come to an end. I don't think I was the corporate type, but um, I continued to still work for them as a freelance producer. And, you know, I, my, my years working for Disney, both freelance and that time I was in the actual you know, the world of Disney and had my own office in Burbank and had my own company car and all that stuff. It was really an exciting time. Yeah, because you mentioned projects like feature films that people are familiar with, like Ratatouille, and you named Finding Nemo and others. But this even involved, because of Disney's corporation, even doing projects with the likes of Nickelodeon. Yes, I mean, like you know, th- there were so many projects that I, that you know, it was actually, believe it or not, I think it was the most successful year. Uh, I was there for a year and a half, but it was probably the most successful year on record for Walt Disney Records. Wow. They they had, um, it, you know, they had uh, Hannah Montana with with Miley Cyrus. They had High School Musical. Um, I mean, literally, they were just on fire. Mm. And uh, I I did I did get involved in certain projects like that. And uh, was overseeing everything from music for infants to the Hannah Montana stuff. To okay. you know, we, I, I I produced a live version of of high school musicals, a, a concert version. Um, you know, so we were doing so many different things that again, you know, I guess you know there was just an incredible variety of of, of music that I got to oversee. So you have had the opportunity to work with so many A-listers throughout your career, and very much like my just having asked you about your TV and film composing career as well as producing albums for Disney, I know it's very difficult to shorten it all up into one answer to one question, but maybe you can at least talk about the likes of, say, Chris Christopherson, Johnny Mathis. Yeah, I mean, I, I well, again, I'm very fortunate because I've worked with some wonderful gifted people, but I've also worked with some wonderfully, you know, gifted people who are icons. Um, Chris uh, is an incredible man. I produced an album in 1997 
called the Austin Sessions, and it wound up uh, on Atlantic Records. Um, and it's one of those important records in my life. We all we all met in Austin. I brought musicians in, and we just did an album that I knew Chris always wanted to do because he he was a great Dylan fan, especially um, in like the Dylan phase of um, sort of uh, bringing it all back home and Hot 61 Revisited and Blonde on Blonde. And that's how he heard his music being done. And, he, and it never was done like that. Mm. And so in 97, I knew that about him. And I said to him, when I met him, I said, I want to cut this record the way Dylan cut Blonde on Blonde in that kind of spirit. And we got to re-record all of his most famous songs, but done in that sort of way. And it's his, it is absolutely his favorite he told me it'll be on his tombstone, mm. and uh, and I think it is a marvelous record. But my time with him uh, was just again just uh, unforgettable. And Johnny Mathis, I again I feel bad asking you to consolidate working with one legend such as Johnny. Not to mention not getting to talk about all the others, but just so that we at least get to hear you storytell about one other. Well, jo- you know, John is is uh, amazing. I think he's eighty. Four now, maybe he might even be eighty-five, and he is still singing in the same range he sang in when he was twenty. Mm. So, so um, this is beyond unusual. Um, he is an incredible man. He's very fit. He plays golf mm. at least four or five times a week. He works with a trainer every day. He has a six-pack. Eighty-five years old, he has the body of, of a thirty-five-year-old with a six-pack. Uh, so he's extremely fit, and uh, and so he's able to continue this career, this illustrious, iconic career. And I have to tell you that he is the kindest, sweetest man, and the most lovable person to work with. Mm. He trusted me. We did two albums. We were going to do a third, and you know, I guess the lockdown stuff had definitely got in the way. And there's now talk about doing another project. But I must tell you, it's been a, a light in my life to know him, and then to produce him was a dream, absolutely a dream come true. And so, um, you know, I'm just I'm proud to say that you know uh, I'm off to LA soon, and when I'm there, I'll I'll be visiting him because he's he's a part of my life, and I'm. I'm just deeply moved that I'm a part of his. Fantastic. Fantastic. Wow. Wow. Well, as we get close to wrapping up, Fred, what about upcoming projects that you have planned? Well, at the moment, um, it looks to me like February and March are pretty jammed. Uh, I've got a wonderful artist. Um, her name is Greiner, E-M-M, Greiner, G-R-Y-N-E-R. People want to look her up. She is... Um, just a monstrous singer and writer. Um, actually, again, illustrious career out of Canada. But also, I mean, she uh, she toured with David Bowie as one of his background vocalists. Oh. Uh, but she's so she's so gifted, and out of really out of the blue, she reached out to me because she had talked to another artist that I had produced a few years ago, and and she said, "You are the person I want to produce my next record." And I was extremely aware of her, uh, uh, certainly in Canada, her, her, you know, she, she is a extremely well-known artist there. And, uh, and this particular record we're going to do in February is very unique. It's, it's going to be definitely a little bit more like almost Steely Dan. So 
mm. in its in its execution and in some of the songwriting that she's doing. But she's so gifted. I mean, she is one of the greatest talents. She also just wrote a book, uh, which just came out, and I don't know the title, but it's uh, it's her book about you know how singing. Uh, basically, you know, saved her life on so many levels, and um, and how singing can help them. And it's a beautiful book, wow. and it's a half memoir, half textbook about being a better singer. Wow. And uh, but yeah, so I'm thrilled to work with her. I can't wait. We've been talking for six months, so I'm hopeful that we are still on board for the first of February. And then um, after that, I have a gal from England who's a new artist named Sarah Cheese. And Sarah is, again, just an enormously, wonderfully gifted singer and writer. And actually, on that one, I am going to probably collaborate on a couple of songs. Yeah. But uh, that will be a, that's in March. But, you know, uh, uh, interesting, uh, that's an interesting one because uh, Sarah is, um, you know, this would definitely be her first album. And she was signed to a management company in England. And... Uh, the person who was the head of the management, who was the one who actually led her to me, tragically died of COVID um, mm. before we we were supposed to record the record in May mm. after Kristen's album, and uh, he was he was dead sadly by uh, March. Wow. wow. And uh, and that derailed her uh, that derailed her project until now. Mm. Wow. But I'm very excited to work with her, and and and, and you know, we'll, we'll we'll dedicate it to uh, to Ali. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, early in this episode, we heard all about Fred's album released in March called "It's Great to Be a Kid." We're going to close today with a song from that one titled "Bedtime." Fred, before I let you go and I play that song, share with the audience about this track first, please. Sure. Well, it ends the album. Um, as bedtime for a child should <laughs> the album. Uh, and it's just, it, it's one that I sang myself because I felt it was right for my voice. And it's just a very, you know, it's again, because I have done so many lullabies, I, it's, it's quite tranquil and, and pretty. And it just is a song about the joys of being put to bed by your caregiver or your parents. And, um, and I think it's a sweet little song that, um, just again, in this whole scheme of things on this particular record, it's about the joys of being a kid. And one of them is, as I remember, and I, as I did it for my children, was bedtime. You know, we'd, we'd, we'd get the kid, you know, in the bathtub or, we'd, you know, you know, get them, get them in their pajamas and then read them a little bit. And the next thing you know, they'd be sleeping. And that's sort of what the song's about. A question occurred to me as I listened to you describe writing that song, which is, again, there's the trap of falling into, well, it's kids' music. And you did a wonderful job early on of describing, I don't want to talk down to the kids. I also want to make sure that I'm sensitive to the parents and the grandparents who are going to buy and listen to this music. We hear a lot of songwriters say, oh, this song wrote itself. Because it's kids' music, does it write itself faster? Or is it, oh, Bruce, you'd be surprised how much I agonized over writing a lot of these songs. <laughs> I don't know why I'm finding that funny, but I do. Uh, <laughs> no, for me, writing children's music is like rolling off a log. I mean, these songs, you know, uh, they were very, very easy to write. Um, I had a lot of inspiration because I looked at my grandchildren and I said, I want to write this song about this today, and then the next day I wanted to write this. So, no, I mean, it just as a rule, I find that children's music, for me, is, is a very easy to write and uh, 
I almost take a Dr. Seuss sort of inspiration, mm-hmm. and and that helps me. And I sort of uh, I sort of do that. I like that Dr. Seuss reference, but I was going to ask you: Is it just simply from being? a father and a grandfather, or is there maybe some influence that came from all your years working on Disney projects that makes writing children's music so much easier well, for you? It's, well, it's, it's, yeah, it's really the, um, it's all of that knowledge that I gained for so many years of, of doing children's music of all ages for, for Disney records um, has absolutely made a difference. So, so it is in my wheelhouse, so to speak. Okay. Okay. Fred, absolutely wonderful to have you on the show. This was a real thrill. I enjoyed the conversation. I really appreciate you making time to be on the show. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Bruce. I'm delighted to have been here. That will do it for another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. My sincere thanks to record producer, film and TV composer, songwriter, arranger, musical director, and band leader, Fred Mullen. Do visit his official website at fredmullen.com. And again, I will have a link to it on the show page for this episode at nhte.net. His new album, released in March, which you heard him talk about, is called It's Great to Be a Kid and is available on iTunes as well as on Spotify, where you can join his more than 225,000 monthly listeners. There is a contact page on fredmollen.com with information if you're looking to get in touch. This is time-sensitive, so again, if you're hearing this interview on one of the first three days of its release, you still have time to go back and hear the offer I made three weeks ago on episode 409 when my guest was Chad Jeffers, who is Carrie Underwood's guitar player. I'm talking about a discount I referred to during that interview that I would make available through December 31st for my online class at interviewtipscourse.com. If you're hearing this episode with Fred Mullen after that date, I encourage you to get on the email list for this show by signing up on the website nhte.net because there are exclusives in that weekly newsletter sometimes including savings like that. As a new year gets started, the on-demand go-at-your-own-pace class at interviewtipscourse.com is great training to set you up for success in 2022 when you're a guest on radio, TV, podcast interviews, and the like. For now, that will do it for episode 412. Thanks ever so much for listening. Happy New Year, everyone. I will send you out today with another song from Fred Mullen. This is the one he just talked about. It's called Bedtime. When the day is over And dinner's in my tummy Time to take a bath With my daddy or my mummy The water's warm And the bubbles pop And then they get a towel And they dry me off And I'm warm inside that towel And I'm quiet as an owl It's time to pick my jammies From the ones my grandma bought I feel so nice and cozy But more tired than I thought I get tucked into bed While the lights are low And the outside world's quiet And things are moving slow My mom or dad will sit real close Sometimes read a book Or sing to me a song I love Till I get that sleepy look I start to yawn and feel like I'm about to go to sleep 
I know it's the first time all day that I, that I haven't made a peep, but there are also times when it's hard to lay my head. And even though I should be tired, I'm wide awake in bed. So I ask for my favorite music, you know those lullabies. They play it on the speaker and it makes me close my eyes. And I drift away in dreamland until the morning comes cuz the next day will be starting. And there's so much to be done, so much to be done. 